All right, good morning. It's good to be with you here this morning and share the Word of God. As we have been going through the book of Hebrews, I'm excited to come to this portion. Even though the title may not be um, that exciting sounding, it is pretty exciting nonetheless. So as we begin, uh, let us start with a prayer. Almighty God, we are so thankful for your word. And as your word is preached, we ask that you would sanctify your people. As your son prayed here on this earth, that we may be sanctified by your word. And as we live out this new and blessed life in Christ, may we honor you in all that we do, edifying our neighbor and bringing forth peace as you intend, according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 39. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 39. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, 
you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I have been thinking and reflecting on how good God has been to our church in many ways, in so many ways. Uh, He has blessed us with a place, extended this lease, and as many of you know, we're, we're starting construction, we even asked our neighboring uh, buildings and schools around us to see if we could find parking, and they would just easily and very, very kindly say, yes, of course, you can have parking. So if we ever ran out of parking, we can now park in the school across from us. And so God has been good to us. But most importantly, and I think most um, just astonishingly, is I realize how much God loves our church because He gave us His Word. And I've been thinking about that and reflecting on that more and more, about how Jesus Christ said, sanctify them. When He was talking about His disciples, He would say, sanctify them. And what did He say after that? Sanctify them in your Word. And that's what God has given us. More important than the circumstances of this life, the pleasures or even the guidance through the sufferings, All of these things are important, and God walks with us through all of them. But even better than that, even higher than that, is how God has given us His Word and given us understanding and given us power through His Holy Spirit to follow through what He teaches us in His Word. And this is where we come to this portion in Scripture. And we come to a marvel of a passage in the book of Hebrews. It is a climax of many sorts, as we will see how it is mixed in with exhortation and encouragement, but along with severe warning. And the reason why I chose to focus on the latter when naming the sermon is because of the structure of the passage itself. As we have read, we can see an application of the burger method, where you have two buns and a meat in the middle. And the two buns, the top and bottom buns of this burger, is the exhortation and the encouragement, with the middle portion being the warning. And the warning is used in this burger method to highlight it. You highlight the meat in a burger, just as the author is highlighting this portion, the warning in this passage. And of course, he uses the last sentences as a reminder, a conclusory remark, and also segue into the next section, starting from chapter 11. So let's get to it. Verses verses 19 to 21 serve as a presuppositional clause for the passage. And I'm just going to do two verses first, and then we'll do verse 21. Verses 19 to 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Again, these next three verses are the presuppositional clause for the passage. And that means whatever the author has developed so far in the book of Hebrews, he is now going to take these and further develop these truths. When I was coming up 
with some of these explanations, I realize that some people might not know what a presuppositional clause means. And I, you know, when I talk, when I talk about definitions, you can't use the word in the definition. So you can't say, what's the definition of a clock? Well, a clock is a clock. That doesn't help anything. So I can't use presupposition when defining a presuppositional clause. So I looked it up. And the dictionary defines presupposition as an antecedent implication. That's very helpful. I'm sure that cleared things up. But even, I think the dictionary has a hard time explaining what it means. But it means that based upon what has been reviewed and developed and established, he is going to now further explain those deeper truths that come out. And this is why Hebrews 10 or any of these passages aren't a standalone, but they continue to build upon each other because you go further into the knowledge of the gospel. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That some people think that the gospel is simply a one detail, simplistic thing, and you're like, oh, this is the gospel. But when you go through Jesus Christ, through the gospel, you see that God opens up all these truths, the beauty of, he, of what he intends for his people. And so even in the introduction, now we have some explanation of what has been established before. We have, what does it say, confidence and assurance by the blood of Jesus to enter the holy places. The heavenly sanctuary, that's what it means. The heavenly sanctuary is now open for us to freely enter. Not to say that the access granted was free, as in the cost, but free, as in free to move about, to enter. Thinking about that, that is astonishing. It's mind-blowing that we can freely enter the most holy place, the heavenly sanctuary. That means there is nothing that will restrict you now by the blood of Jesus Christ that will restrict your movement in the heavenly sanctuary. That statement alone is pause-worthy for the Christian. To move freely about in the holy places, access to the Most High God by the blood of Jesus, which connotes the new covenant. And this is what it says next, the new and living way. Jesus opened for us through the curtain. What is the implication there? That this new and living way through Jesus Christ is eternal. It's qualitatively new because it will never become old. This new and living way will never pass away. The way to God is forever, once and for all, established through the blood of Jesus Christ, that is, through His flesh. Once again, pointing to the humanity of Christ and His sacrifice for us. What was once hidden and inaccessible, it was shown to us in the Levitical ceremonies, through the Mosaic law, in the Old Testament. What was hidden and inaccessible is now open to us, meaning it is now open and accessible through Jesus. A pivotal and important reminder of how we have attained free access to God and the heavenly sanctuary. It is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no other means by which we are granted access. Verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, 
it leads us to the second introductory clause. It's pointing to a second blessing we get. Not only was that noteworthy and praiseworthy, the second blessing, the community of Christ, we have through Jesus Christ, Jesus' blood, a great high priest. Where do I get we here? In verse 21 it says we. How do we see the community of Christ in the word we? Let me remind you, went back in chapter 3, verse 6, it says the house of God is identified with what? What is the house of God identified with in chapter 3, 6? It's the community of faith. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So the great high priest being over us, or the community of faith, is the assertion that Christ is now our head and the ultimate shepherd of the church. Who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. This is not to absolve any responsibility that I would have as a pastor, but pastor, even though it means shepherd, when you call me pastor, what it really means is we are and I am an under-shepherd. Pastors are under Christ as head of the church, almost like sheepdogs. We round up the sheep, but we bring them to the ultimate shepherd because the shepherd is the one that ultimately sustains the sheep. So Christ is the head of the household of God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now here we get to the first bun. And with the first bun, we see three exhortations. It starts with let us. And so we can refer to them as cohortations. That's really a word. So not just personal exhortations, it's a we exhortation. So it's a cohortation. So once we realize the benefits of the blessings that we have received and shown to us in verses 19 to 21, the appropriate response then is what? To draw near. The community of faith, a.k.a. the congregation, drawing near to God in Christ is in essence who a Christian is. What a Christian is. The new relationship we have in the new covenant should undoubtedly necessitate a closing of proximity between the people of God and God. That means we get closer and closer to God as a Christian. That's what defines who we are. Meaning we are now drawing near because all of this access has been granted to us. A Christian life is marked by this faith. A faith that draws you nearer to God. And how is that faith expressed? It's expressed in prayer, in worship, and as we see in the later bun, even through suffering. And in the latter portion of this verse, we see the context in where do we do these things that draw us near to faith. And we see that it is a sincere heart. A heart that we previously saw in Jeremiah is a new heart that God would create in his people. He would take the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He would give us that new heart. We would be assured of purgation of even an evil conscience by the blood that is sprinkled on it. 
and our bodies are washed in pure water. That means the soul and body are completely cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ so that in faith, all of who we are, body and soul, can approach God. The heart and body refer to both the inside and outside being cleansed, a complete and holistic cleansing with nothing lacking in any way because of Jesus as you approach God. Now I'll make a side note that the early Christians would have undoubtedly seen the purification of the body as a reference to Christian baptism, which replaced all other Old Testament cleansing rituals. This is why the purification of the heart and body are complementary aspects of the Christian conversion. Your heart is changed and your body is renewed, and we show that through baptism. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now this is the second cohortation, and that is to hold fast an unwavering devotion to what? To hope. And the writer qualifies hope with confession. Our hope pointing to the previous passage on the possession of this eschatological hope we have in Christ. Hope is highlighted here because it is sandwiched by hold fast and unwavering. Hope is right there in the middle. These two synonyms lift up then the burger, and that's a mini burger within the burger, so it's like a slider. But hope, when you look at it, always points to an object. The object of the hope we have is the priestly activity of Jesus. And we can be content in this hope because what it is showing us is he is ever-present. He is always interceding as high priest on behalf of his people. And not only that, the whole fast, the confession of our hope, is to believe that Christ has extended his salvation to his people through his priesthood and sacrifice. To hold fast without wavering is then to be steady in this hope, firm in this hope stable in this hope because God is utterly reliable. We have reason to remain steadfast and not waver. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The final cohortation is to summon up, to bring out, to stir up a continual care for one another in love and good works. Good works are an outward expression of love, and it shows that Christians are to have a practical care for each other. There is an active interest and concern for each other's, one another's welfare and well-being. And this is especially important because life is filled with trials and disappointments. And so good works are meant to show, be shown as expressions of love that we have for one another in the community of faith. They are to act as mutual encouragement and exhortation. I want you to notice what the writer does here. These three cohortations, if you've been paying attention, 
are also the three things that remain for Paul in 1 Corinthians. The first cohortation is faith. The second cohortation is hope. And the final one is love. You have faith, hope, and love in the Christian life. Now to the context. When you fail to do these things because you neglect to meet together, even in the early church, there was a neglect to gather. And scholars have, have come up with the reason why people thought it would be because of all this suffering and trials. Actually, it wasn't. It was because people were consumed with outside affairs and appointments. People back then also had people to see and things to do on Sunday. But the desertion of these community gatherings were such a serious concern to the writer of Hebrews. If something threatened the gathering of the church, then the life of the church he would see as on shaky grounds. And as some commentators have put it, quote, this is a prelude to apostasy. Not meeting, not gathering together would lead to catastrophic exposures of peril. Why? Because we were meant to encourage one another. Who's responsible for the gathering of the saints? Is it just me? Do I call everyone up? Do I post on Instagram or whatever it is to get everybody to show? Who's responsible for the gathering of the saints? Here we see, let us, every saint is. And the sobering reminder of why we must do that is the day of the Lord is drawing near. We must be alert, encouraging one another of what is to come. So continual and active participation in the church community isn't just a recommendation. Again, I'll say it, continual and active participation within the church community isn't just a recommendation. This isn't just some gravy that you can have or abstain from when you put it on top of your meat. This is the meat. There is no other option that God has set aside for the Christian. And again, it's given that the reminder of the day of the Lord is approaching. Now, if we're, going to, if we're going to compare apples with apples, how big of an event is the day of the Lord? It's massive. It's what Christians are waiting for. It's the ultimate consummation of our faith. Then he's comparing apples to apples. Then if we are comparing the day of the Lord, then how, importantly, how much in our priority list should we hold the gathering of the saints? Because he's putting these two together. I don't think I can emphasize how important it is for your Christian life for you to gather with the saints. And as our church name would insinuate, the gathering comes before the scattering. Otherwise, our scattering is judgment and not blessing. Verse 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now we move on from the cohortations to the meat of the burger. If you deliberately and purposefully neglect the gift of God, you reject the gift of God. 
And this is tied in with the last cohortation. They're not just stop and go, just different items here. It's meant to blend in. If you stop meeting in the church, you reject the love that you ought to display, and you display instead a contempt for the truth. But obviously, it's not just only about meeting together. This is the case with all of God's gift. And yes, in this context, it would be the three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. And if you deliberately and willfully continue to sin even after these exhortations, the book of Hebrews reveals to us that there is no more Mosaic covenant that you can draw back to. There is no more sacrificial system that you can reset as a default. They're like, oh, I didn't like that. Can I reset the default to this? There is no more default, only a fearful expectation of judgment. And by judgment, he makes it clear it is the judgment of hell, the fury of fire. That's no subtle allusion to what that means. Because when you deliberately go on sinning, even after you know the truth, you show contempt for the gifts of God, and then what you do is you set yourself up as an adversary of God. So when you intentionally sin and express an attitude, not of worship, but rather of disregard, you move from grace to voluntary apostasy. People like this, the Bible continually instructs us, people like this we are to cut off. People who persist in their sin, even if they have seemingly responded to the preaching of the gospel, their faith isn't in Christ. Their beliefs and worldview are not centered on God or the things of God. It's centered on the world. Their hope isn't in Christ. Their faces are set on the things of the earth, the perishable, the defunct, the things that cannot and will not ever save. And their love isn't in Christ. They don't want to follow Christ or his, or his commands. They still want to follow the envious desires of the old heart. <clears throat> There's an old movie that I watched. It's called Matrix. And if you're wondering which one, it's the first one, because that's the only one worth watching. And in this movie, there is a character named Cypher, and he has one seminal, pivotal scene that actually makes the movie, and that is when he is eating steak. So he goes back into the Matrix, and people, people would comment when they first saw this movie, they would say the steak sh sold the movie because that steak was really, really good looking. It was a beautiful steak. But this is what he says. He says, I know that this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. And then he proceeds to eat the steak and sigh ignorance is bliss. These people knew the truth about what the matrix was. And even though they knew the truth, Cypher, this character, decided to go back into the matrix because he wanted to eat the steak, which was fake, because he wants to say ignorance is bliss. But that wasn't the only thing that happened. That is desired neglect that he wanted for the truth and reality, even though he knew the truth and reality, meant giving up his closest confidant and friend, his leader, Morpheus. See, the apostate isn't just someone who can idly go by back again. The apostate is the enemy of God. And the consequence of apostasy is both terrifying and final. 
And after you hear all this, you might be thinking, that seems a little harsh, no? But the writer goes on, verse 28, 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? The law of Moses, it was given by angels. We saw this before. The law of Moses, which was given by angels, even that had a steep punishment. But what the apostate does, what the apostate tramples under his foot, is not just an angelic message. What the apostate does is trample under his foot the Son of God. When you reject Jesus, you reject the Son of God and even trample Him under His foot, under your foot, as it may. And it's not just that. The blood of Christ, which has provided a new and eternal way of salvation, you profane and you outrage and insult the Spirit of God. These are people that have chosen to return to the world and leave the embrace of the Christian community. They reaffirm the values of the world, the values that set them on the course for hell in the first place by profaning the salvation that God offers through the blood of the covenant. And we have many names for it now, like deconstruction, where I've left the faith, whatever these things are. But notice that these are all outward acts of a hardened heart. And the outward act always is an attack on God and His people. I'm going to say this with certainty. No one leaves the faith quietly. There's no such thing. It's always a brazen profaning of the pure and holy gift God has given us. Again, it is because apostates make themselves, they position themselves as the enemies of God. And those that have been part of the community that now intend to do harm to the community and Christ, the high priests set over the community have a far worse punishment for themselves than you can imagine. Verse 30 and 31, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, 35, and 36. But Paul also uses it in Romans 12, 19. And it means the same thing. It's showing us. Now, what happens if you are punished? What happens if you become an apostate? And he says it in verse 3, using, verse 30, using the quote from Deuteronomy 32 and even Romans 12. It's showing us that God will personally take revenge on those that become his adversary. He's not going to delegate it to anybody else. And the summation of this warning is almost redundant, but said for clarity and emphasis that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord's profound majesty and holiness is being shown to us as a reminder of who we are dealing with when we make boastful claims and teeter nonchalantly with sin. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. 
And as his pastoral style has been in the previous warnings as well, remember this is the fourth one, he not only finishes the bun with an exhortation, but now serves, these exhortations serve as words of comfort as well as encouragement. Asking someone to recall the former days is to call back the listener or reader to the times God has shown you grace in your life. Through enlightenment and hardships, He enlightened your dark eyes. He made you wise when you were once foolish. And through the hardships, by God's grace, you were able to endure. Were you not? You're here today. Remember those times, verse 33 and 34, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And like a good pastor, he knew the details of what the congregation had endured. You would imagine it's because he was praying for them, stood alongside them, and rejoiced when they rejoiced, and wept when they wept. He remembers the solidarity that they showed for one another because they had followed those cohortations and loved one another. And even when they would see loss, they remembered that God had a better and permanent possession in store for them. To be Christian is to be courageous. And remaining steadfast in your unwavering hope, loving one another, all of that made the church courageous indeed. Verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Just as a parent encouraging their baby when they're taking their first steps, the parent would stand or be just a few steps beyond them. The author encourages the church not to lose the fervor they once had before because there is a great reward, the culmination of their, sanctifica uh, their sanctification and their salvation, which is glorification. And glorification belongs to those who passionately hold on to their faith. 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endurance is a common theme for Paul when he also alludes to running the race of faith. But endurance is necessary to do the will of God. And what is the will of God? The will of God for you, I'm going to tell it to you. If it's a secret to you, let it be known. It is now revealed. The will of God for you is to obey God. We have come to a place in our Christian vernacular for the will of God to mean my future. You know, what is the will of God for my life? What's really, what is that really asking? Who does God want me to marry? What job does he want me to take? Where does he want me to live? And while they are important questions to ask, there is still a more important meaning behind doing the will of God. It means to obey God here and now. Obey him when he commands you to be confident in faith, unswervingly hold on to hope, and stir one another up in love. And you doing the will of God is what living your life out in salvation looks like. 
We come toward the end. Verse 37 and 38, yet a little while and the coming. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. To prove his point, the final quote in this passage is from Isaiah and the Septuagint and Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. He uses these quotes to bring us back to the warning. He is absolutely, Jesus Christ is absolutely coming back. And the contrast is shown one more time between the righteous and those who shrink back, meaning those who commit apostasy. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In this final sentence, the writer answers the question, how can you be sure that you're saved? How do you know that you will attain eternal life? And that leads us to two points in this sentence. The answer to the question, and by asking the question what the goal of the Christian life is. First, the answer. How do you know you will attain salvation? How do you know you will have eternal life? The answer is faith. You don't give up. You don't shrink back, and you don't get destroyed. You have faith, and on the basis of faith, you preserve your soul. What is the goal, then, of the Christian life? It's telling us what it is. It's to attain eternal life. And eternal life refers back to what we have learned in the first Westminster Shorter Catechism question, does it not? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The difference between life and death is the difference between faithfulness and shrinking back between obedience and apostasy, between choosing faith, hope, and love, or choosing destruction. Now, some people are confused these days about how some people keep on choosing the wrong path, clearly a destructive path. You watch the news, you look it on, on your social media or your cable news channel, and these people not only continue down this path, but it seems as though these days when it's clearly against God and His commandments, they double down on it. That's the message we preach, is it not? We say things, it's clearly in the Word. Abortion is absolutely wrong. Making your kids take puberty blockers because you think they are trans is vehemently wrong. But, what if you already did those things? Is there any coming back? And in the world's eyes, there is none. There is no stopping what you started. It shouldn't surprise you that the people are continuing to double down. But God offers a way out from what started as a slippery slope in your life and now what's seemingly a cliff of doom. And that's called repentance. It's called metanoia in Greek because it's the changing of the mind. The place where you once put your faith, you stop. You don't put your faith in those things anymore because you are no longer in this world or of this world. You put it in God. Repentance means you stop trying to be God or stop trying to change God. You, don't, you stop thinking, well, I can't be a Christian because he thinks this way and I don't want to change. That's not where repentance is. Repentance means you are submitting now to God. You are placing your faith in God. 
And the amazing offer of the gospel is of, of the gospel is this: those that place their faith in Jesus Christ have their sins forgiven, their shame taken away, and in its place you have a new heart and new life. And now we live in accordance with faith, hope, and love, worshiping and serving the eternal God eternally. The gospel truly is an encouragement, is a joy for us to reflect on and respond with worship to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God who gives us a way, a way into the most holy place where we may live freely in his presence. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us, the exhortations, the cohortations, and even the warnings to show us the danger of what it means to trifle with sin. And so, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as you have given it to us in your word, help us to now live a life that is pleasing to you, doing your will for your glory. And perhaps there is a place in your life where you have not fully submitted to God. It's written with shame. It's written with anxiety. It's written with sin. But you see, Jesus Christ is the way. No matter what, when you place your faith in him, it is his blood that covers us and gives us a new heart. So submit to the Lord. Submit to his word in every area of your life. Make him Lord and Savior. Let's pray.